All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CSCS Beat, More Than Just Matters of the Heart. Uh, my name is Ansar Hassan, and I'm the president of the Canadian Society of Cardiac Surgeons. And on the CSCS Beat, what we try to do is we try to sit down and chat with some of the thought leaders across Canada and beyond and talk about all things cardiac surgery. Last month, we focused on patients with injection drug use-related infective endocarditis and the clinical and ethical conundrum that we as cardiac surgeons face with this patient population. Tonight, I wanted to talk about something entirely different. I wanted to talk about cardiac surgical training in Canada. Now, over the past few years, the CSCS has placed an increased emphasis on training is between the boot camp, a virtual lecture series, the national mock exam, the educational task force, the annual job fair at the spring meeting, which is coming up in May, and the workforce committee. The CSCS has really become intrinsically involved with trainees and their overall well-being. And I think much of this, thankfully, has really been driven by the trainees themselves. They have been so inspirational, and I think the CSCS has married themselves nicely to this initiative. In fact, I think trainees, interestingly, comprise nearly half of our current membership. This is outstanding, and I think one of the main reasons why cardiac surgical and training in Canada is a topic for this episode of the CSCS Beat. First of all, before we continue, I would like to thank Edwards Life Sciences for working with us on this podcast series. Please note that any surgical techniques discussed herein are the techniques used by the respective medical professionals. Edwards Life Sciences does not endorse any particular surgical technique. Expert opinions and advice represent the medical professional's views and not necessarily those of Edwards Life Sciences or the CSCS. All right, let's get started. I will freely admit that it's been a long time since I was a trainee, but interestingly, much like you have vivid memories of high school or college, you also have similarly vivid memories of your training from the people you train with to the people who you trained under and everything in between, residency and fellowship training leaves an indelible mark on you. And while there are no shortage of good memories, I think we can all agree that there are probably some less than great memories too. Residency training in general and cardiac surgery training in particular can be especially challenging. So on today's podcast, I've gathered a group of trainees from across Canada who will shed some light on the issues that residents face today. First of all, I'd like to start with Dr. Saurabh Gupta. Saurabh is from Milton, Ontario, and he completed his medical school at Western Ontario. He did his residency at McMaster University, and he successfully depended a master's in health research methodology focusing on knowledge translation and he's currently doing a fellowship in advanced cardiac surgery in the University of Alberta. He's a chair of the workforce committee at the CSCS and a great colleague. Saurabh, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Aslan. It's great to be here. Dr. Abigail White is from St. John, New Brunswick, and she did her medical school at Dalhousie University, which is where I met her, and she started her residency training at University of Alberta in 2017. She's now completing her PhD, following which she will return to clinical service in July of 2023. I'm sure she can't wait. She is a trainee representative at the CSCS and really one of the major engines behind the trainee initiative at CSCS. Abigail, good to see you. Thank you. Dr. Adam McBall is from Mississauga, Ontario, and he completed his medical school at McMaster University, where he is currently a fourth-year resident in cardiac surgery. Of interest, Adam completed a master's in health economics, outcomes, and management at the London School of Economics during his research year. Adam, good to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. And finally, Dr. Quinn Nguyen is from Edmonton, Alberta, and she did her medical school at University of Alberta and is now a first-year resident in cardiac surgery at the University of British Columbia. Quinn's on call, but glad to have her on board. Quinn. Thank you, Dr. Hassan. All right. So 
Let's get right into this. I'm going to start with you, Quinn. When I applied for cardiac surgery way back in the day, it felt like nobody was applying. And, and that's, that's the honest truth. It was actually kind of unpopular to be interested in cardiac surgery. And thankfully, because of that, that's how I got in. Anyway, all kidding aside, maybe not. Uh, now everyone and their dog wants to do cardiac surgery. Quinn, what has changed? I mean, why, why are so many people interested in cardiac surgery? I mean, why were you interested in cardiac surgery? Oh, thank you, Dr. Hassan. Like something I can confirm is that both me and my dog Blue, we are both really interested in cardiac surgery. So I'm not sure about other people, but if I if I had to uh, think about why other people are interested in cardiac surgery, I think like number one would be the exposure to cardiac surgery has significantly changed in the past couple of years with like all the initiative that Abigail and Surat have been doing, all the lecture series, all the podcasts that you've been doing. So people get to know cardiac surgery a bit more in the recent years especially with the newer generations of surgeons and residents. Um, I also feel that um, in maybe the last couple of years, like there was some myths about cardiac surgery that have been debunked. Things like, oh, there are no job in cardiac surgery. That's not true. As like, we have seen like many, many residents who have graduated from cardiac surgery, they have gotten job where they wanted to be. I think Dr. Gupta is one of the examples. But as for myself, I'm not sure about other people, but I um, I could go on and on and on about why I love cardiac surgery. Um, I think number one for me is I really love the technical aspect of it. There are so many things to learn in terms of technical skill in cardiac surgery. There are so many ways to do the same thing as well. So I like when I look at cardiac surgery, it feels like a science, but in the, at the same time, it's like an art to me. It's like a way for surgeons to sort of express their creativity in some way. Also, another the reason why I love cardiac surgery is like I really like the operating room. Time really flies by when I'm in the OR and I don't think any other specialty operate as much as we do, at least like from my limited exposure as, um, as, as a medical student and now as an R1 in cardiac surgery. And I also think that like um, what we end up doing in life depends a lot on the people that we have met along the way. And when I was in Edmonton or when I moved to Vancouver, I've had so many mentors in cardiac surgery. Abigail is one of the examples. A lot of the surgeons back home in Edmonton and now in Vancouver have supported me. And when I look at them, they are the people that I want to grow up and be like them. So they really inspired me and supported me throughout the way. So I think that's like a big reason why I'm so attracted to cardiac surgery. That's a great answer, Quinn. And I, you know what? One of the issues that I knew we were facing when I was applying was that there weren't a lot of jobs. In fact, they talked about at that time the workforce prospects being bleak for at least the next 15 to 20 years. And I remember people saying to me, like when I got into cardiac surgery, is like, well, do you think you'll honestly have a job when you're done? And I was like, well, I hope. And thankfully I did, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't straightforward. So definitely a lot has changed. I think job prospects are one thing, but I think a lot of what you mentioned, which is the excitement around the field, the great mentors that people are running into in their, in their medical school years, I think that has really changed the the overall look of cardiac surgery considerably. All right, Adam, you and I both know that cardiac surgery training isn't easy. Uh, it's it's an incredible commitment at almost every level. Do you think residents are prepared for the rigors of cardiac surgery training when they first start? I mean, if anything, what can we do better to transition residents from the time they finish med school into their first few years of residency? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Son. I mean. I think cardiac surgery is sort of unique in a sense that uh, unlike things like internal medicine, even general surgery, we take such few residents per year. I mean, programs are usually welcoming one to maybe two residents per year. And I think 
With that, it means they're individuals. It means they have individual needs for support and for transition into, uh, as you say, how difficult a, a cardiac surgery residency can be. What that also means is when I think back on my experience as a, as a junior trainee and what has sort of helped me over the last few years, I was reflecting on this earlier. And I think uh, first and foremost is a culture of support uh, within programs. And that was mainly led by as senior residents when I first started and as well as our faculty. I still remember the chief resident when I first started, you know, our first few calls at McMaster were backed up, but um, I think there was only three or four calls. And after that, you were on call by yourself. And that's certainly daunting when you're coming from medical school. And I, I still remember our chief resident said, it doesn't matter at any time you call me and I'm you'll ne you're never alone. There's always someone there to support you. And I think that that automatically makes a huge difference. And so I'd really encourage um, uh, programs to do that. I think that makes it, that level of support gives uh, junior trainees and new R1s a lot of comfort. The other thing I think, in, this is sort of more of an ongoing thing, but I think structured teaching is a really big part of supporting junior learners. I think we've done a lot of work locally on our academic half day, and I think it's made a huge difference in terms of just uh, keeping people on top of a knowledge base, uh, giving them confidence with their knowledge and having opportunities to be face-to-face -face with staff and seniors and discussing topics. Um, and I think that that's really helped some of our junior learners as well. And finally, I would say that I think the hidden curriculum is pervasive in medicine. Um, and I think we can do a much better job of being clear with communication of expectations. And I know borrowing from other sorts of uh, other disciplines or other programs, you know, sometimes people get sort of this handbook when they first start residency and it sort of lists out expectations. It lists out even small technical things like how to use the EMR, things that if you're doing residency in a place that you didn't do medical school, things that can be quite daunting, they can be quite cumbersome when you first start residency. And I think if uh, we sit with our junior residents and clearly communicate expectations and uh, reach out with a helping hand, uh, I think that's the best way to support. Yeah, really good answer. And I think uh, you hit, I think you hit a lot of nails on the head right there. Okay. The Royal College has changed its training paradigm from a more traditional ITER fighter evaluation to a competency by design approach. Abby, in your mind, how do you think this change affects how residents are trained? And I think given your expertise in this area, where does simulation fit into this equation? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Hassan. So you know, I, I certainly, I think it's a, a step in the right direction for cardiac surgery training to try and make more objective metrics on how we assess a trainee's readiness for independent practice. But I know that some of the objectives that the Royal College has mandated for the final year of training is certainly a contentious issue for trainees and faculty alike. Despite being ambitious for certain programs to achieve, I think if you don't put them down on paper, then we're never going to move the needle. But is it actually changing how we train residents? That I don't agree with. I think that cardiac surgery is very much still in an apprenticeship model of training where we spend hours in the operating room watching our faculty surgeons operate. And while I certainly don't believe that simulation should replace operative room experience, I do believe that we can and should increase the learning opportunities outside of the operating room, which includes simulation, not just for technical skill improvement, but team-based training so that we can optimize our learning opportunities when we're in the operating room. And I mean, at the end of the day, the goal of simulation is to improve the safety of our patients. Yeah, I think you're you're right. I mean, this whole see one, do one, teach one thing still very much exists. And 
And we, we really kind of need to move away from that model a little bit so that we aren't, you know, we aren't exposed to our first memory takedown in a live setting, for instance. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And I think as a, as a trainer, it's a challenge because you're uncomfortable sometimes giving that up. I mean, let's not take memory takedown, for instance, but we can talk about mitral repair. But at the same time, as somebody who's training, how else are you going to get that exposure? And high fidelity simulation models is a great start to allowing people at least that first step towards gaining some of the basic skill sets. And I think a lot of the work you've done has really been, you know, leadership quality on that front. All right. Interestingly, almost everyone on this call either has or is working towards a master's or a PhD. And I think this is very much a Canadian phenomenon. I mean, in the States, for where I am right now, you don't really see a lot of that. What are your thoughts on this concept, Saurabh? I mean, it's been around for quite a while. I mean, from a workforce standpoint, is, is this what cardiac surgery divisions in Canada want? I mean, should we continue to encourage this? Or should we be a little bit more like general surgery where there are community and academic streams and the community stream doesn't really emphasize that much research, whereas the academic streams are very much pro master's PhD. Thoughts? Yeah, that's a really, really good question, Dr. Hassan. And I'm going to start off by saying, I think this, I agree with you, is very unique to the Canadian system. And I think it should stay this And the reason being that I think cardiac surgery is distinct from other surgical specialties where we do interact with a cardiology colleague so closely. And there is now becoming more and more overlap in the studies that we do and sort of, you know, how, where do we draw the lines of what cardiologists do, what cardiac surgeons do, whether that be, you know, how we treat left main or whether that be how we do uh, who and how and who does tabbies and mitroclips. And I think having an academic background helps you be able to understand that evidence and that data and be able to have a uh, a, a real discussion conversation around that. Now, the caveat that I would say to that is, and which we are seeing in the last five to 10 years, is not everyone needs to do uh, a, a health research methodology. Not everyone needs to do a, a clinical epidemiology, right? We need the Abigail Whites to do the PhDs in education and simulation to improve the educational paradigms uh, across Canada in cardiac surgery, we need the atomic balls to do health economics and 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 forward the field that way. I think you know we need the Dr. Sophie Weiwei Gao, who's a chief resident currently in Hamilton, who did an MBA at MIT. I think yes, we need to do masters and yes, we need to do PhDs, but I think we need to start diversifying more and more and encouraging our trainees more and more to delve into those different field within our enriched years. And I think that's where we're going to start to see growth in our specialty beyond clinical epidemiology. And I think community service, uh, community programs will appreciate uh, surgeons coming in with those backgrounds because it's applicable to everything. Uh, from a workforce perspective, every program, whether it be community or whether it be academic, wants someone who has some sort of enrichment experience outside of surgical skills. Uh, as at least that's it remains the paradigm in Canada. Um, is it what's going to make or break you getting hired? No. Is it going to be something that puts an extra star in your CV that you can talk about, that you can discuss at your interviews, that you can bring to the table when you do start your job? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, especially those of us who've, who moved south of the border, your, your, your enrichment background makes you almost an automatic leader at a level that a lot of your colleagues are not here. And that's just here. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I think the Canadian model is a fantastic model and 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 the diversification of enrichment is 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 absolutely an, a direction we need to be going in. Like you said, we don't all have to be benchtop researchers or clinical epidemiologists. I mean, there are so many different things that we can do that can enrich the field. And I think we're starting to see that. And as these people with different backgrounds move into leadership positions, you will see those interests grow even further. So uh, well, well said on every front. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Quinn, I'm going to come back to you. And y- y- here you are, you're just coming in on, you know, you're coming on the scene and you're kind of fresh and you haven't been jaded yet by the by the profession. So this is a good time to ask you this question. And I know you're on call, so you may get jaded by the end of the night. Uh, but let's just say this, work-life balance, I think we all talk about it. And I know it's not a popular subject because sometimes work-life gets equated with, well, I don't really like to work hard so that I can have a good life, but that's not true. Is work-life balance truly something that's attainable even during residency? Or in your mind, you're like, I don't really want to talk about this because I'm afraid I'm going to look bad. I'm just going to park this until later in life. Thank you, Dr. Hassan. I recognize that I may be innocent because I'm just an R1. Uh, But I I do think that uh, work-life balance is an an attainable goal during residency. At least for me, I think like uh, for work-life balance, I really have to make it a choice. So it has to be like a conscious decision if you want to have work-life balance. So for example, for myself, like even when I'm on service for cardiac surgery, we operate every day, but I always like try to build in like downtime that I can like hang out with my dog or like go to the beach or, you know, go for a hike. It doesn't have to be like a fancy vacation of two weeks, but it could just be like small things that you enjoy doing. And I think for me, that is like enough for work-life balance. And I also think that like when I think about work-life balance, at least for someone in cardiac surgery, I think more about like like quality over quantity, I do realize that it's a very demanding specialty and we may not have as much free time compared to, let's say, some other like specialties. But uh, I, at the end of the day, I think that if we set boundaries so that when you are at work, you're at work, but when you, for example, hang out with your friends, you don't, you know, um, just talk about work or talk about cardiac surgery, then as long as you set like some clear boundaries so that any time you have to spend outside of work would be quality time. Then I think like work-life balance is actually an attainable goal. I also think that work-life balance means like different things to different people. So you really have to see like what that means for you and really try to make it like a conscious choice and really to, like you have to see what you want your life to look like. And then I think it depends on the individual person to um, to really make that like an attainable or not goal during residency. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think it really comes down to respecting the concept, right? Respecting work-life balance. And if you respect it, then you're not afraid to talk about it. And you're not afraid to respect other people's wishes to, you know, attain that work-life balance. So for instance, you know, if somebody says to me, well, you know, uh, is, is it possible that, you know, I could maybe get out a little bit early because, you know, it's my it's my kid's birthday. And I mean, if you can't respect that, then then I think we're missing a lot. I mean, there's more to this. This specialty is about looking after our patients, but also looking after each other. I think that's really so important. Saurabh, what do you think? Thanks, Dr. Hassan. I, I just wanted to add to what Quinn said so eloquently and, and what you echoed by saying that I think what we are also need to mention is that it's each program's responsibility to also look out for that work-life component of its residents, Right. As residents and as trainees, as fellows, whatever it may be, there's only so far we can go within the confines of what the program has created as a 
expectation, right? It may not be written on paper, but residents know what the expectation is within each program. And that expectation has to also change from top down to let residents feel comfortable to be able to advocate for their work by balance, right? I know that was a huge push during my residency in Hamilton from the leadership, from the staff coming downwards, uh, telling us that, you know, we want you to be more focused on post-call days and taking those days and and looking out for yourself. And that, I, I, yeah, I think that component shouldn't be missed. Yeah, and it, it's hard because the old model once upon a time was, you know, the more you were there, first on the scene, last to leave, you know, you were rewarded for it in some way, shape or form. And I think I think we have to come out of that mindset. Uh, and I think we have c- come a long way on that front. I mean, we're definitely not where we used to be. Uh, so, and I think that's a great thing. And I think we need to continue to push that. Adam, let's talk a little bit about equity, diversity, and inclusion. All right, the landscape of cardiac surgery trainees in this country is changing. I mean, you can see it at meetings, especially in terms of g- gender distribution and to an extent percentage of visible minorities. Uh, do you th- Are we doing enough to actively change this in... Uh, is there more that we should be doing? Are there other underrepresented groups that we need to better represent, like say the indigenous population, people of of, of different sexual background, gender representation, all these sorts of things that we don't often think about? Like, how do we ensure that this sociodemographic makeup that we are really pushing at the trainee level persists into divisions and departments? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Hassan. I mean, without a doubt, this is a incredibly important topic and. I think you could probably have an entire podcast episode just to talk about uh, EDI. And um, I'll I'll start by acknowledging, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't, that, you know, I'm the white male on this panel and I'm the one answering this question about uh, EDI. But I think actually it's a jump off point to say that uh, EDI work or equity, diversity, inclusion is everybody's work. Um, it's not just the work of those who feel underrepresented or are um, unfortunately affected by systematic disadvantages. And so when uh, you ask, are we doing enough? I think um, really, are we, is there, is there an enough? Is there a threshold at which point we would cross and say, oh yeah, we've done enough on the uh, EDI front. And I think the simple answer is that diversity and inclusion are uh, continuous processes. Um, And it's, it's critical that they're embedded in uh, the culture of leadership, of organizations, of divisions, of institutions. And so I think we can always do better. I think you've uh, already alluded uh, to some of the work that has been done to improve the representation uh, within cardiac surgery, certainly with regards to uh, gender diversity. I think we've made strides uh, and that's visible definitely amongst the trainees. I think you know, we have to acknowledge it's tough. Cardiac surgery is a long road. And I think these changes are recent enough that we're only just starting to see uh, because of sort of a 10-year essentially time lag between the time that people enter training and then become faculty. We're only just starting to see that being represented in the faculty and um, and in uh, leadership and in divisions. But we are seeing it as you recognize, and that's uh, that's inspiring. I think there are still underrepresented groups, um, and uh, as you alluded to, you named some of them, and I'll give a shout out. I think I saw uh, at U of T, I think Dr. Yanagawa and some of the medical students at U of T have been doing some specific work about Black and Indigenous students and giving opportunities to uh, those underrepresented groups. And so I think there certainly is work to be done. There is work ongoing, but like I said, we can always do more. 
Um, and I guess my final point on this, if I can, is access is really, I think, the starting point. Representation is the starting point. I think that is, it's a very important start, but I think we need to embed it as part of the culture as sort of an active process. And in doing so, we need to be very cautious about uh, tokenism and being con uh, cognizant about uh, placing the burden of doing EDI work on uh, folks that are brought in to represent diversity, for example. So I'll loop back to what I said at the start. I think uh, EDI work is everybody's work and we can all do better, but um, certainly so far good work has been done and I look forward to seeing what else we can do together. Yeah, beautifully stated. And I think, look, I mean, every time we at, at our particular program here, every time we go to hire, I mean, we, we've got to be thinking that. We've got to be thinking of how can we change the complexion, the makeup of a, of a department and and how can we change it for the better, right? And and the, all the things that you brought up are, are, are fantastic. All right, Abby, over to you. You've been a real champion for trainee education. And I think the CSCS owes a lot to the work that you have done to raise the profile of trainees across the country. Where do you see residency education going in the next 10 to 15 years? What big changes do you expect? Oh, well, thank you, Dr. Son, for saying that. But certainly, you know, none of the work for training education would have been possible without the support of CSCS. So truly, thank you for being a society that actually appreciates their trainees. But, you know, at the end of the day, I believe that wherever you're receiving your training in Canada, in Canada, if you put in the work, you're going to graduate as a very capable heart surgeon. But if we think about where could training go? Well, I think it would be interesting to see how residency education changes after we have a cohort that actually finishes competence by design and goes into independent practice. It will be of utmost importance for the Royal College to evaluate their program and see whether or not it is actually beneficial for training education. I suspect individual programs will have to adjust based on whether or not objectives were actually able to be met. Secondly, I think we're gonna see huge advancements in simulation. We are already seeing patient-specific technology with rapid 3D prototyping, gaining popularity, and of course, an increased emphasis in team training. As we become more and more sophisticated in our simulation technology, I foresee trainees actually having to demonstrate a benchmark level of skill before proceeding to the operating room, or even using simulation technology for more summative assessments of trainees, rather than just a formative assessment. But if I look, you know, just at Canadian cardiac surgery education in general, um, what I hope to see is that we continue to see growth amongst the community for collaboration and knowledge sharing amongst one another's institutions. I truly believe that we have a unique opportunity because we are such a small community in Canada but there is no reason why we can't work together to draw upon one another's program's individual strengths to help with program's individual weaknesses. And I truly feel lucky that uh, I'm currently training in Canada. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think, look, I, I'm very fortunate. I mean, not that I don't appreciate where I'm at right now, but I really appreciate the fact that I, you know, I I'm Canadian and that I came out of a Canadian training environment and that I, I even got a chance to practice in Canada. It, it's it's a great spot. And um, I think, you know, all of you are very lucky and, and, and I think there are so many others that are lucky too. And I think the way you describe how training is going to change, I think it's exactly the direction it's going in. It's, it's going to look very different. It's going to look very different. I mean, this last change to competency by design will be followed by another change. And I think we're going to see it. I mean, why not? I mean, that's, I mean, we have all these technologies at our disposal, digital abilities, et cetera, to kind of simulate training. Why don't we use it? All right, Sora, you're the workforce guru. You've done a lot of work surveying departmental heads and program directors, and I think you're working towards publishing some of this work. But for those of us who can't wait, 
Give me, give us a little snapshot of what you found out and how do you think we can make the job search and hiring process easier for everyone involved? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Hassan. And, and again, I'll echo what Abigail said. I, when I came on as a chair for the Workforce Committee, there's a lot of sort of mystery shrouded over how we can go about getting jobs in Canada as cardiac surgery trainees coming through. And one of the biggest mandates was please make that easier to understand in that process. And I think because of the support of yourself, Dr. Izuni and Dr. Aurora, Dr. Lagari, we have gotten there now. And you know, doing all this research and doing all this surveying, we've we're now at a point where we have individual data coming in from individual divisions across country looking at their hiring practices for the next five years. And I think what we have recognized is number one, there are a lot of jobs coming through in the next five years within Canada. I mean, I can name five divisions right now that are looking to hire in the next year. Uh, you know, there are divisions, uh, at least two or three, that are looking to hire two to four surgeons in the next five years. The specialties, subspecialties within cardiac surgery that seem to be the most interesting or the most in demand right now are transcatheter therapies is by far number one at the top of the list. And I would say very close second and third are aortic and minimal invasive cardiac surgeons, which makes sense given the direction that our field is headed. And I think when it comes to what do trainees need to know, I think they need to know that rather than it becoming a field where there's no jobs and, and you know, we, divisions are looking to hire from abroad because there's not enough trainees, I think now division chairs are open to having these discussions with the trainees. They want trainees to contact them. They want trainees to start this conversation as R4s, R5s, R6s, so that they can start figuring out, okay, if this person is interested, what kind of fellowship do we want them to do? You know, what kind of uh, process are we looking at? I mean, honestly, that's how I got a job. You know, the division chief uh, from New Brunswick, Dr. Ligari, reached out to me the day I got my exam results, and we started the conversation about, okay, we're looking to hire someone who's got a trans catheter experience. Are you open to doing that fellowship after finishing up in Edmonton? And then, you know, can you come visit and hire, hire uh, and, and get hired? And that conversation can happen the other way as well, where the residents can reach out to division chiefs. And I think that's something new that wasn't there, you know, 10 years ago. But that data will be presented at the CSCS spring meeting, uh, looking at individual divisions. And on uh, as you end up in chatting, the plan is to make it uh, available on our website as well in a map. And uh, we're going to then uh, publish the data, uh, not by division, but looking at sort of what the work has been done by the CSCS in the last three years to make this job search more attainable for our trainees and for the division chairs. Yeah, so true. And I think, you know, it's it's only getting better and better and better. And I think, you know, there's, there's always going to be jobs now for the people who are well-trained. And that's most of everyone coming out through the Canadian training programs. So look, thanks everyone for your time and insights. Uh, that was great and just and a lot of fun. And I think really kind of just solidifies that really positive relationship between CSCS and its trainees. Uh, once again, I would like to thank our sponsors, Edward Life Sciences um, and the production team at Bang Albino for bringing this all together. Uh, that about wraps it up for the latest edition of the CSCS Beat More Than Just Batters of the Heart. Stay tuned for more podcasts in the near future.